Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. We're going to get right to the show after these messages. This is E.J. Findorf, author of Blood Parish, and you're listening to the Mysterious Goings On. You know, I write mystery thrillers, but I don't write something called the police procedural. I'll tell you why. I was never a cop, and if I attempted it, our guest today would probably kick my ass. <laughs> it's Frank Zafiro, former cop, former Army intelligence officer. He writes popular, top-selling, gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. And you know what? I'm not going to continue this intro. I want to get right into it with him because I want to find out all the things I've been doing wrong, and I want to find out about his books, and I just want to have a great conversation with a really great writer. Frank, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Well, thank you. That's a, a hell of an introduction. I hope I can live up to it. I think you. I think you will. I. I wanted to step back, and if it's okay, and I. I, I don't. I, I. don't want to take anybody off here, but. But I will anyway. But I just got through. Uh, I read a lot of these, but I just got finished with, with the Bosch TV series. Wondering if you caught it because that's supposedly a procedural, right? Absolutely. Um, it, it is a procedural. Uh, the the entire series that Michael Connolly wrote uh, with Bosch, or, or they're all procedurals. Uh, they're generally whodunit procedurals. Um, uh, some people like sometimes I'll, I'll write who done it. Sometimes I'll write how done it. So in other words, you already know who the bad guy is, but it's about how and if they get caught. Uh, Red Dragon was was like that. You yeah. you knew who Francis Dollarhide was, but Will Graham and the FBI didn't. Uh, Thomas Harris, great great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I still prefer the Michael Mann adaptation, the Manhunter uh, for that. Hundred percent, brother. Hundred yeah, percent. Well, the no, reason no. I I wanted to bring that up just because I think that th that way, if people don't know what a procedural is, they probably a lot of our listeners have probably watched that. I don't do it, you know, until I go, oh, well, that's great. Let's talk about some other author. But I think it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, a nice example of of a procedural in, in your opinion too, right? Yeah, I mean, and and that that one focuses primarily on one character. Um, there are also ensemble cast sort of procedurals that maybe think like Hill Street Blues or NYPD Blue or, yeah. or something along those lines. Uh, Southland was, was, was kind of like that as well. Uh, so yeah, that, those are definitely procedurals. I think Bosch is a great show. I haven't started the final season that just dropped just yet. Uh, it's high up in my queue, but I discovered Justified and I'm kind of on a, on a tear there. My um, all-time favorite. I, dude, oh man, isn't Justified just a blast? It really is, and and it was it was uh, recommended to me by a lot of my writer friends, my crime writer friends, uh, Eric Beatner in particular. And I went to watch it, and it was and I watched the first episode, and I dug it. And when I went back about a week later to kind of start in earnest with some binging, it had moved to Hulu, and I didn't have Hulu <laughs> at the time. And uh, so we just got Hulu for Handmaid's Tale, and uh, I'm sticking with it for quite a while now because uh, Justified is is. Pretty, pretty much rock in my crime world at the moment. I love Justified so much. In fact, uh, I know by osmosis, it's found aspects of it has found its way into my own work. Uh, 
Probably not Bosch, though, because as I said in the intro, I'm not a procedural writer. And I'd love to hear, um, knowing that you you were not, you know, just a, a patrol officer, but you were a detective and then you were a you know, sergeant and a captain. I mean, you've been through the ranks, literally, here of police uh, uh, work. And I'm curious, how about this? Is there, we've just thrown out some great pop culture references to the procedural What's your feeling on the state of the police procedural? Are, are writers, by and large, getting it right as a former police officer, or is it are they getting it wrong, but it's okay because it's it's in service of the dramatics and the good story? Yeah, some of both, I, I would say. Um, there are some writers that just nail it. I mean, uh, uh, Bruce Robert Coffin uh, is, is one of the best, uh, may, maybe of writers you may or may not have heard of. Um, I'm reading the first novel by uh, a friend of mine named Mark Bergen called Apprehension. And and if people want a very procedural heavy, uh, uh, get it right sort of book, this one is bang on for that. And and that's not to say it, it gets mired down in the details. It doesn't at all. But, um, you know, it's a book that a hardcore uh, procedural lover who really cares about getting deep into the details could love. And, and yet, if, if that's not your thing, it's not going to weigh you down as you go as you go through it. Um, but you're right. I think it's all about, you know, tending to the story. And if you're not out and out wrong with a detail, you know, if you if you have a if you have a detective lieutenant in a small town doing or, you know, doing, I mean, you know, you could be off. Right. I mean, you could have stuff that, that are my pet peeves sometimes that irritate me, maybe that that would never happen or that's totally wrong. Well, you know, law enforcement isn't a monolithic thing for starters. I mean, it, it policing in, in Los Angeles versus New York versus New Orleans versus Mississippi versus Spokane, Washington, where I, I had my career, uh, there's some commonalities, but there's a lot of differences. So to say this is the only way something could be done or that's wrong because we didn't do it that way, uh, that's just not, not accurate. Now, I mean, there are some mistakes that you just don't want to ever see. But uh, but I think you really hit on something. Is it is it helping to tell the story? Because the story is the most important thing. Right. Well, it, well, the thing I think about, and speaking of Bosch, and I'm not going to give it away, but let's just, well, I think we can assume this is probably in the past few years, because I just, just literally had three days ago finished the series, and I'm... I, gosh, you know, I'm going to miss that one terribly, although we, apparently uh, there may be something later. But um, the thing where Bosch or one of his people, they get into a shootout and they kill somebody, but they're back at work the next day, right? Yeah. Yeah, that never happens, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's completely unrealistic today and, and actually has been for, you know, two or three decades at least. Um, generally, when, when somebody's involved in a critical incident uh, like that, there's, there, there uh, is a mandatory period of what we used to call administrative leave. Um, and, and it's paid. There's no assumption of wrongdoing, but it, you were involved in a, in, a, in a shooting or another type of critical incident. And while it's being investigated, um, or at least until the preliminary uh, investigation is complete, uh, you're you're on administrative leave. And so, some of that is to take somebody off the street who you know just did something that we have to determine at least preliminarily if this is looking like it might go right or go wrong. Uh, and and the other piece to it, at least the first 72 hours, is a little bit of a chance for the involved officer to uh, you know to. Uh, recover essentially to uh you know defrag from from what happened 
Um, and because, you know, police, police officers are human beings, they are affected by what happens. And, and that's one thing that isn't always shown very well in TV and movies, either officers are completely devastated in a way that derails their life and their career. So it's like a nuclear bomb of an impact right. or it doesn't affect them at all. And the reality is obviously in between some people are pretty severely affected, but everybody is, is impacted uh, to some degree and, and it can have a lingering uh, impact. I mean, post-traumatic stress is real uh, for, for everybody and, and uh, you know, public safety folks, uh, police officers, firefighters, you know, medical people who deal in emergency you know, response or, you know, the emergency room, they encounter a lot of instances where the, you know, post-traumatic stress could occur from that. I mean, it's a good candidates yeah. for experiencing that. So, but, you know, you wouldn't have much of a story if the story went, you know, chapter one, get in a shooting, chapter two, stay at home for three days to be interviewed and then be off for two weeks while they clear you. Right. Uh, or at least preliminarily clear you. I mean, that'd be, you know, a boring story. Uh, and so <laughs> there's your, there's hearkening back to what you said about the license to, to tell the story. Take I, mean, I mean, I guess they could have a couple of paragraphs saying, and, and Sergeant Stevenson ate some donuts and watched a lot of Netflix, I mean, for three days or something, you know, but yeah, but that's boring. And that doesn't keep the story. I mean, particularly in a, I think in a, in a movie or a TV show because people want it to keep going. I guess you could in a book, right, Frank? I mean, you, you could easily yeah. do that and maybe explore that. And, and I appreciate what you said too, is this is interesting. My, my brother's a first responder. My nephew's a first responder. Um, and then I have a lot of medical folks in my family, but, but one thing I learned in my research, cause my character in one of, in, in my series uh, has PTSD and in actuality, uh, the people I interviewed, you said actually most people think you have to wear a uniform to have post-traumatic stress which is not true at all um uh he said he said the, the the vast majority of people who have ptsd that he's treated at least he said childhood trauma uh or domestic trauma which is a stunning thing to think about that's not to diminish that people in uniforms obviously get it right we all know that but i think it's something that uh i don't think the average joe knows and and i heard something from a uh, a medal of honor winner um actually who uh you know is is now involved a lot in in this uh post-traumatic stress uh particularly with veterans uh different programs to, to help with that and he he made a comment one time that the d in ptsd uh he thinks it should be dropped he thinks it's ridiculous because it's post-traumatic stress disorder and he said, there's nothing, it's not a disorder to react to some of the things that these soldiers, in his case, have seen uh, it, in the way that they're reacting. To be devastated by what occurred is not a disorder. It's actually a very rational, human, regular, normal reaction. Right. And so, I mean, I realized the medical you know, field calls it a disorder because of the impact that it's having on you being able to live your everyday life. I get that. But it, it's an interesting way to approach it, that it's post-traumatic stress that you're dealing with. Right. Uh, and so uh, I really, that, really, that really resonated with me and, and really, really stuck because uh, I think he had a great point. Well, Frank, let's talk about uh, the, this um, work of yours. And I can already tell just discussing this with you that um, um, you 
it's funny because you know I you know I ask you what is what is it you do you know, what are, you write gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge it's like that's your tagline that's what you do and I and I, I appreciate that but uh, do I detect though that we're gonna find some some not only the the great procedural uh, nuts and bolts that we're all looking for but maybe there's some is there some of this uh, sensitive uh, look at people's lives who do this kind of work oh absolutely absolutely um, the first series that I I wrote and still my flagship series if you will. Is the River City series, and, and River City is a very thinly disguised uh, Spokane. Um, is it's an ensemble cast police procedural, kind of like we alluded to earlier with the Hill Street Blues or, or uh, you know, Southland or whatever. Um, and one of the things I kind of wanted to accomplish in writing that series, after of course telling a good story and and all that goes along with that, was to humanize uh, the the police officers involved because you know, I think we're a society and have been for some time that sees people uh, in kind of a surface fashion and then label that and then, you know, act accordingly. And with cops, it's the badge and the uniform that they see rather than the person behind it. And so one of my goals was uh, in in the process of telling a good story and, and, and some, you know, fun action and, and showing some of the mechanics of police work that interests people uh, is to is to humanize those characters, to show you what someone like Katie McLeod is going through when when faced with this uh, particular horrific event. Uh, how does she deal day in and day out with now having three or four rather large events in her past? How does a longtime veteran deal with the realities of police work and and policing? Uh, you know, being a peacetime warrior and how does that factor in and, 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 and just really bringing home the idea that these are people who are dealing with real situations that can and do occur and are reacting in a very human way. And my hope is people read that and maybe they look at, you know, the next cop they run into and remember, it's not a badge, a uniform and a gun belt. It's a person uh, right. behind all that. Uh, you know, I find it interesting about you that you actually, okay, started writing at 13. And you actually started working on, I believe, to correct me if I'm wrong, of course, your first book at that age. Now, last I checked, you were not a cop at age 13. So I'm curious, how did, is this just something you were born to? Uh, did you come from a police officer background, family? Um, tell me Tell me how we got from 13 starting there and having this wonderful career in law enforcement and in military intelligence and then got to today. Uh, yeah, I, I did know I wanted to write from the time I was 13 and, and started writing very derivative uh, stuff. Early yeah, on. I've been there. Sure, sure you can relate. Uh, and, and I grew up on fantasy and science fiction. So a lot of what I wrote was related to that. Um, and, and I wrote when I was in the, in the military I didn't really write any military fiction, a little bit, but very little. Um, and 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 the first book I started writing was the the terrible quasi autobiographical dreck that every writer writes at some time and that will never see the light of day. Right. Um, and that I'm in, incredibly uh, uh, grateful to the two or three mentors who actually took it seriously and gave me feedback uh, back when I was you know 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, it wasn't until after I came on the job, um, I, you know, I did a five-year stint in the military and then I came on the job in, in 1993 um, and, and started 
experiencing that, that my writing focus started shifting more towards crime fiction. And so I wrote the first draft of my first book a couple of years into my law enforcement career. But then it sat for about eight years while I was busy going back to school. I, I got my history degree full time while I was working and 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 that took up a lot of time. And, and then I was writing police reports and learning a new job every year and a half or so. Uh, and so it really wasn't until about 2004 that I things had kind of settled to a point where I could re-engage with fiction. And by that point, I was 11 years on the job, you know. Um, and so it was almost exclusively crime fiction that came out probably 80, 80%. Um, and, and it just, it, you know, took off from there. Guess you never ran out of, uh, you know, triggers for material, you know, I, I would imagine. That is one of the things about having done this job. And I think if you talk to any writer who, you know, who was a cop at, at, at some time, you don't have to slow down for the research. And you don't have to completely make up scenarios. I mean, um, a lot of what I've written in the past has had the flavor or the texture, uh, you know, of of real life experiences, and I and I've stolen a few straight up lines that people have used, and and you know, uh, always always giving credit and and getting permission where necessary. But yeah, but uh, but I, I mean, I've been careful to make sure everything's fictionalized, and most and ninety nine percent of it never happened in any shape or form. But the texture of it, the feel of it, the sound of it, you know, all of that informed it. Um, and I don't have to go to the internet to, to try to figure out, you know, whether or not, you know, uh, you know, something about a gun or a procedure or, uh, or, or, you know, am I understanding the rank structure of a police department correctly? Because these were things I just knew from having been around them for, for 20 years. Um, and in fact, I've been a resource for other writers that, that, that I'm friends with who will, you know, drop me a line sometimes and, you know, ask for a fact check or a, you know, a veracity check on something. And I'm happy to do that. Um, so it certainly is an advantage. I mean, that's true of anybody in any field. If you were a musician for 20 years and you're writing, you know, a, a book that is heavily, you know, involved in music, you don't have to stop and learn music theory. Uh, you know, right. you've got that knocked. And so I think that's what they mean when they say, write what you know, because right. that, that, uh, you know, total genuine, uh, sincere and, and uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? That's just, it's, it's bang on. It's accurate. Right. Uh, it really shines through if it's something yeah. that you're very familiar with. The verisimilitude is important. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And uh, that's the thing. And uh, I agree with you. I, I find myself uh, stealing lines from people or, or just, uh, uh, making notes of things I've seen and, and trying to rework that because it it's just that I think Stephen King said that's like the flavor in the sauce, man. You know, exactly. Um, yeah. You can be as far out in Pluto as you want, but if you want, you got to pull people into something they can hang on to. Um, yeah. So so I like that. And I've got them written down, you know, and I think and, you know a few of them still pretty pretty good chunk of, of a few. Uh, but the danger is is trying to you can't shoehorn them in, you know. Right. I mean, right. I've had a couple of really great lines. And, and I sat on them for, oh, geez, uh, let's see. I, I retired in 2013. Sometime in 2012 or 2013, a detective that's a pretty funny guy named Ben Estes gave me a line. And I think the book that I used it in finally was published in 2018. And, and, and I'll tell you the line, because I think he's hilarious, this guy. And I reworked it a little bit for the book, but 
he was a detective and, and he worked on major crimes and he was kind of dismissive of people dressing like slobs you know they're, they're wearing their their khakis in their and their uh, golf shirts and which was perfectly or polo shirts which is perfectly acceptable for for casual uh business casual but he he had disdain for that he wore suits and dressed up and and thought detectives should do that and he just shook his head one day and looked around at the bullpen and told everybody there that the days were over of people dressing like substitute teachers and first year realtors. And I thought that was such a good line. So I, I threw it in the mouth of a Lieutenant, but you know, bitching off of uh, the, the, the two detectives, you know, cause uh, each one fit one of those uh, you know, particular descriptions. But I mean, I sat on that for five years. It was such a good line. Um, and I've got a bunch of them like that, but you can't shoehorn it in. I mean, it had yeah. to fit to get used. Okay. I, I got to ask this because I, I so rarely get to speak to uh, an esteemed procedural writer in particular. Um, okay. The tropes. Okay. There's there's one. I've, I've got to ask. So d- did you at any time and did you as a captain become the, the, um, the boss who has no first gear? It's all third gear and shouting at the policeman <laughs> that worked for him that, or her. <laughs> that is a trope. And and it was actually uh, completely de, uh, deconstructed really well by Mike Myers in How I, uh, yes. uh, How I Married an Axe Murderer. I Married so an Axe Murderer. <laughs> yeah, his friend's a police detective and, and the captain is super nice to him and he's, he's always trying to talk him into yelling at him. Um, uh what's that actor's name that that plays the, the captain i always uh alan something i think is this oh was it alan arkin it was alan arkin yeah yeah, yeah. and and he just he gets he it's pretty funny uh, i'm guilty of that trope i i have a couple of different times in you know but when you've written 30 plus books i guess you can be forgiven if something seeps in once or twice um i was uh i was never that captain i was very consciously never that captain um it doesn't mean you don't have to chew somebody's ass once in a while, but uh, yelling at people really doesn't work very well. Uh, talking to them does. Yeah. And, and so, no, I, I was never that guy, but uh, certainly have written two or three characters who are. And, you know, it's fiction. It's fun. It's uh, having a boss like that is, it, you know, it, add, it adds some humor or some tension or uh, give, gives the, uh, especially if it's a couple of partners, gives the character somebody to, to not like to make yeah. fun of behind their back to feel pressure from. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's good to have a character like that. Uh, maybe not as overblown as, as you've seen it in some places, but yeah, yeah, that's a big, that's a big trope. The other one is the one you brought up with, you know, bang, bang, I just got in a shooting and now I'm back in the street 15 minutes later, yeah. uh, you know, cleared from the crime scene and that's all done. And that one bothers me. My, my biggest, most per- personally biggest pet peeve, especially on TV and movies were police work is concerned is when uh, especially a patrol officer, but a detective too rolls up on scene of something super hot and dangerous. And they're about to go into the building to confront it. Right. And they pull out their gun and they rack the slide on their, on their handgun. It's ridiculous. And it kills me every time I scream because if, I mean, if you find me a detective or a patrol officer who rides around without one in the pipe then I'd like to hear their reasoning behind it because uh, they're they're a unicorn for sure. Um, you know, Seconds I'm not count. About the shotgun that's different, um, right? You know, but I mean, 
yeah, Wyatt Earp didn't have one in the chamber. That's because if you bump the hammer, the gun might go off. But that, we're a little better these days with technology and manufacturing of firearms. So uh, that's a that one. It just I scream when I see that. I, I, it drives me crazy for some reason. When I, uh, I I okay, I'm again giving away my age. We might be close in age. I'm not sure, but uh, so Starsky and Hutch, Captain Doby. The first one I remember yelling at Starsky and Hutch all the time. You know what I mean? And I know Starsky and Hutch uh, has its own, probably has a whole encyclopedia of issues, but uh, um, I, I think it was a good relationship, to a good buddy film, a buddy cop TV show. But the point was, I always remember Captain Doby just like, one, he ate a lot of junk food. And <laughs> two, he was always at Starsky. You know, he's mostly at Starsky, but because Starsky was a hothead. Um, but here, here's one other thing, and I've, I swear listeners are going to be like, oh, God, Alex, did you really ask this gentleman this? But I'm going to ask you. So Starsky and Hutch just happen all the time. And it's happened in other shows I've seen in the years. So they're, uh, what is it when you're going for lunch break? Is that, what is that, 10? What is that? Uh, it, that? That's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier. Some people use 10 codes. Some people use different codes. That was a signal seven for us, you know. Signal but, seven, okay. But so, other people would be like, we're 10 whatever it is i don't know even know what the code is we didn't use 10 codes well they're, so there's signal seven at and they're at some place and Star, starsky and hutch and of course you know hutch is complaining because starsky just got a chili dog with everything on it and hutch is like eating some wheat germ or something you know that was their thing but they get a call and they would just dump the food out of the car and drive off now I, does that happen yeah really happens you yeah. just you're just looking at a glorious chili dog and you just have to throw it out the window and go yeah, I mean, uh, it's probably overdone, um, but, uh, you know, it depends on the call. Uh, you know, you, you might, especially if you're in the passenger seat, you might be able to scarf while you're driving. If it's, you know, maybe not a, you know, you know, it's not a burglary in progress or a robbery in progress or something, you know, that, that, that that's going to get, a, you know, a code three response and, and it's priority one call. Uh but uh yeah I, i've thrown things out the window and i always felt bad because it felt like littering you know but uh <laughs> i mean I, I, if i could secure it i would but that's the problem with a lot of that stuff you can't secure it in the car when you're driving at pursuit speeds and so that's yeah. why people do it it's it's worse and better i suppose when you're at a restaurant and you can just get up and go because if it's a place that you frequent like we used to go to breakfast in the morning when we worked graveyard shift the 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, shift, uh, about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning when things have slowed down and you're stacked up in paper, we would go to one of two or three different breakfast place, places. And one that was pretty popular uh, a couple of years there when I was on Graveyard was called Waffles and More. And it was a local establishment, local owner, you know, it was kind of place you'd like to spend your money. And they weren't they weren't cop worshippers, but they weren't, they were solid like you're just like the plumbers and the contractors and the you know whoever that's coming in that you, you didn't get looked down on either um and they they treated you like people and, and had great great waffles so if you had to get up and leave in the middle of your meal and they know you there right they would actually right. take your plate and throw it under the heat lamp for you uh yeah. in case you came back you know and then if it got to be like 7 15 and they know you're off shift now they dump it obviously but um you know i mean it's 
Yeah, that's that's why you sometimes like to go with five or six guys because they can watch your food for you or pay for your food for you if you haven't paid yet. And, right. Uh, and yeah. So that's I, that's why the pack mentality can help out a little bit. Well, see, and that that I, I was researching that for something I was working on, and I on Cora there was a question about that, and a cop answered, and he said, "Look, you know, I often would carry a twenty dollar bill if I had to get up and leave. They knew who I am. It's a, like a, he's a regular. Some I just throw the twenty, and we we'd square it later." He said, usually my lunch did not cost or my dinner was not more, you know, 20 yeah. bucks. It was far less. Yeah. That That's a thing too. And yeah, uh, we if, used to do uh, the opposite in that we'd, we'd ask for the tab up front because you're not, mm. you're not there having, you know, an, an undetermined number of beers at a bar or something. Right. I mean, right. you're buying, this is it. you know, hash browns and, and, and bacon and eggs and, and a cup of coffee and with free refills, it's, you know, it's eight ninety nine plus tax. And so just pay it up front. And then if you have to run out, well, you're losing your food, but hey, the business isn't having to, to deal with it. So that was another way to deal with it. Well, Frank, thanks for indulging me in some of this stuff here. I, I know you didn't really expect to talk about that on the show. Oh, I'm Hey, Frank, I'm going to call a signal seven on this here. I think we need to take a break. <laughs> Can we... I'm I'm having a blast. If you're having fun, would you mind terribly speaking to us for just a little bit longer and, and coming back next week? No, I'd be I'd be happy to. Just be careful. Signal seven probably means something completely different depending on where you are. In the <laughs> so somebody might be thinking you're going to the bathroom for a for a little business or something. Who knows? I, I don't I don't know. Oh I'm my gosh! Come back, you bet. And folks, in in the meantime, before next week, be sure to visit mgopod.com for the show notes here, where you'll find links to Frank's work. You'll find a link to his website, which is frankzafiro.com. You're going to find the whole thing. But don't forget to come back, folks. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your pods, and it'll just turn up next week when Frank returns for some more enlightening conversation about police procedurals and writing and, and a lot more. Okay, who has a podcast then writes an ebook about podcasting and doesn't do an audiobook version of it? Well, not me. I've done that. In fact, I'm very excited to tell you, dear listeners, that the podcast option, my recent top selling ebook on podcasting, my journey through 15 years as a podcaster, broadcaster, host, guest, and observer, is now an audible audiobook. It's really, really, really exciting for me to be able to present this to you through Audible, uh, which is available on Amazon.com, where the ebook link is as well. And in this fast listen, my experience uh, comes to you through stories, practical tips and advice from my hundreds of hours as a guest, producer, podcast host, and more. And the podcast option, if I say so myself, is mandatory listening for those new to podcasting, and it should be a welcome addition to veteran podcasters library. So check out the podcast option read by yours truly, Alex Greenwood, or as they say there, the J. Alexander Greenwood, because that's my pen name. And that's a long story, which if you dig through my podcast, eventually you'll find out what that means. But the point being today, the podcast option is available now as an audible audiobook. I've got a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Please do me a favor, go get that audiobook. Or if audiobooks aren't your bag, there's also a link for you to get it as an ebook. Again, the podcast option. I certainly hope you will choose it. Thanks so much for listening to Mysterious Goings On. Don't forget we have a complete archive of all of our interviews, monologues, updates, live readings, dead readings. All of that stuff is available 
at mgopod.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual suspects. Please join us there. Again, don't forget, mgopod.com also has links where to find me on social media and how to get in touch in case you want to be a guest here on the show. Well, I think it's time that I move on for this week, but until next time, keep reading.